Welcome to the Johns Hopkins University Press Podcast. I'm Mary Alice Yeski with the JHU Press Journals Division. Joining us today is Dr. Leland Tabaras. Dr. Tabaras is a visiting assistant professor of English at Loyola University, New Orleans. His latest paper, Misfit Professionals, Asian American Chefs and Restaurateurs in the 21st Century, appears in the summer 2021 issue of the journal Arizona Quarterly. The paper explores how Asian American chefs and restaurateurs are gaining mainstream acclaim through challenging the norms of the restaurant industry. Examining the narratives in these chefs' cookbooks, Dr. Tabaras coins the term coming to career narrative to take a close look at how these misfit chefs achieve success through new forms of professional and cultural belonging that revise popular perceptions of Asian Americanness. Thank you so much for joining us, Leland. I really appreciate your time today. The first question I like to ask all our guests just to get a little background is what is your academic origin story? Yeah, so for me, um, I was actually thinking about uh, this a little, you know, in preparation for our discussion today, and it made me really think about how my origin story is kind of circuitous in the ways that I write about with some of these, what I call misfit professional uh, chefs and restaurateurs. Uh, I, I kind of had this windy road, one to academia and then two to Asian American studies. Uh, so before academia, uh, I was, you know, working in uh, nonprofit, kind of had a career in uh, education directing. And even before that, uh, when I was an undergrad, I was like, um, went into college as a biology major, thinking I was going to do medicine. Um, I, but I really didn't know what I was going to do. You know, I come from a mixed race family of, you know, Chinese immigrants uh, Mexican immigrants. So who were really just trying to establish themselves. Um, so I didn't have too much guidance on, you know, what I wanted to do, or I thought about that as much, um, in college, I was interning at like nonprofits as well as I spent a year as a carpenter, uh, which I haven't really talked about, but I guess it it might be relevant for our discussion here, but (laughs) I kind of found myself in these sort of you know, what I think of as like non-traditional sort of spaces uh, yeah. that are not explicitly coded or marked as sort of Asian American, right? Being yeah. a carpenter. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I got to grad school, uh, I also came in really not expecting to do Asian American studies. I didn't have a background about really thinking about um, my or even Asian American sort of racialization in these uh, critical kind of ways. And it wasn't until I happened into a graduate seminar on uh, multiracial and multi-ethnic literatures uh, that I began to really find interest in and kind of relate to the materials that I was uh, reading. And that was uh, led by a professor who became really influential to me and still is. Uh, She would ultimately become my advisor and is still really, uh, I'm still really close with her. Um, So her class and graduate school was really influential and inspiring to me. And it kind of brought together a lot of these personal and professional connections that would ultimately guide my work. Um, And, you know, uh, how did I get into even like thinking about um, race and labor? Mm -hmm. I think it really is rooted in some of these 
in some of these uh, ways that I'm didn't really imagine myself or didn't see myself fitting into some of these traditional or stereotyped narratives of Asian American kind of professional belonging, mm-hmm. at least when I was finding my way. Um, and this really allowed me to think about and really um, tap into my own interests, I guess, in reading and thinking critically about social media influencers or something on YouTube and Instagram and TikTok uh, and Asian American chefs and restaurateurs. Um, so I think maybe, you know, my career backgrounds. Uh, gave me a foundation for thinking about uh, the ways that, you know, institutional structures inform and shape how we see uh, Asian Americanness and racialized people and uh, manage certain kinds of forms of belonging, but also uh, inspired me to think about like what new kinds of industries are emerging and what new kinds of institutional uh, modes of professionalism are emerging and how does this impact our long-held understandings of race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. And just as a, as a kind of interesting aside, this is, I think, maybe my fifth or sixth podcast interview with, you know, an author in academia who has said there was one class, there was one lecture <laughs> and one or one professor that just was it, it, like kind of the, that lit the fire under the person in terms of how they directed their research. And that just kind of as a daughter of an educator warms my heart knowing that like there's, there's still, you know, there's still those moments of, of, of really good inspiration. What was your um, professor's, what is your professor's name, by the way? That um, Yeah, was- Tina Chen. She, okay. uh, yeah, we still keep in touch a lot. I will say too, um, yeah, it's, it's wonderful to see. And I actually write about this a little bit in the piece too, the ways that these kind of mentorship and formalized, but also informal mentorship pathways uh, manifest in these institutional spaces mm-hmm. that can be really generative on the one hand and facilitate this kind of community. I was able to find, um, you know, a small and close Asian Americanist community at my graduate uh, institution. Um, that was really helpful for me, uh, moving forward with my career, but also again, with me personally thinking more about, uh, matters related to identity, belonging, race. Um, on the other hand though, I think that it's interesting that a lot of the people you had mentioned have like one professor or one class that inspired them Mm -hmm. because well, while mentorship on the one hand, definitely, is generative in how it can forge communities. Mm-hmm. I think it also can be symptomatic of maybe uh, structural inequalities where people might have to rely on, mm. uh, maybe more so than other certain kinds of communities might rely on mentorship or than others because they might not be getting the same kinds of guidance in the more formalized and normative structures of an institution. So mentorship becomes like a very productive and influential space but it's again, a kind of byproduct, it might be a byproduct of some of those existing structural issues. It's filling a void. That's a really good point. I'm really glad you said that. Thank you. So what drew you to focus on the vocation of chefs for your research? How did you sort of narrow down your your focus there? Yeah, so I mean, uh, this 
this project comes out of my larger book project. This is kind of a project in food studies, but my larger book project is really thinking about professionalization and uh, reckoning with Asian Americans entrance into increasingly diverse industry professions in the 21st century, you know, and uh, what their participation means as they go into wholly and newly emergent kinds of professional fields, like again, say YouTube or TikTok or Instagram, but also fields that have been historically working class and then uh, evolved or transitioned into these professional spheres like the restaurant industry, which professionalized in like the mid 20th century. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's kind of my, the groundwork for some of my thinking. But also, I mean, uh, if, I, if I'm just saying like, where are we seeing Asian Americans accruing high levels of visibility? Well, it's on like cooking competition shows or like, you know, mainstream entertainment like Bravo. Mm -hmm. um, I will say I do like cooking competition shows and that's kind of like uh, sparked my own interest. Um, but then it, those kind of shows quickly show you how Asian Americans are now industry leaders or industry influencers uh, you know, they're winning Michelin stars, James Beard awards, food and wine, you know, magazine awards, Bon Appetit awards. Um, so it's, it's really signaling a changing kind of one industry, but then two, uh, changing perceptions of Asian Americans and Asian American food ways, Asian inspired food ways in uh, a field that has historically disenfranchised that population. You know, maybe listeners now might think that it's very common to see like Asian inspired or Asian American foods as like high fine dining. But that hasn't been the case uh, for many years, uh, you know, and, and even the origins, uh, the origin story we could say of like Asian Americans in the food world uh, has, was kind of due towards institutional and systemic racism in the 19th century. Uh, Chinese immigrants came to California for the gold rush. Uh, they experienced a lot of uh, racist legislative policies that pushed them out of the gold mines and forced them into service industry jobs in San Francisco Chinatowns, uh, doing service work like laundry work or, um, you know, uh, food, uh, food and restaurant work. Um, so, you know, the origins of of Asian Americans in the food world really dates back to the 19th century, kind of like racist regulations of Chinese immigrants. Um, and then, you know, in the mid 20th century, uh, various, for various reasons, different kinds of Asian ethnic population or Asian ethnic uh, foods become popularized mm -hmm. uh, to the point now where now, you know, it's common, you expect almost to see uh, Asian Americans winning Top Chef, or you know, in this last season, uh, Japanese uh, chef was in the finals of Top Chef, and many of the guest judges were Asian Americans. Um, so you can see how this kind of shift in professional norms and expectations uh, alter. You know, my work tries to show understandings of Asian Americanness, but also spotlight and signal shifts in the industry that enculturate these kinds of different uh, perceptions.
as, as a fan of Top Chef, one thing I've noticed um, throughout many seasons, this seems to be a recurring thing, is that the story arcs of the chef competitors frequently follow a storyline of the chef sort of not doing well or not succeeding in the competition until they find their, quote, authentic cuisine or cuisine with heart. A lot of air quotes here. Um, and that frequently is the food of their childhood or their culture of origin, um, you know, what their grandmother cooked for them, that kind of thing. So my question is the changing definition of authentic uh, is something that your paper explores in detail, which I thought was so interesting. Do you think that shows like Top Chef, um, like as you just said in your in your last answer, that are kind of showing all this, do you think that shows like Top Chef help or hinder dismantling cultural and professional standards within the restaurant industry with, in terms of that sort of authentic definition? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question. Uh, and it's hard to pick sides. I think it's kind of both. Um, so I will say, though, that, you know, authenticity is a very fraught term, as you were signaling in your question. You know, like, what does authentic mean? Um, what constitutes authenticity, right? Uh, a lot of scholars point to the ways that um, certain kinds of foods uh, are seemingly authentic, but then their origins kind of date back further. Uh, you know, you could trace ingredients and certain ingredients are authentic to a particular region at a particular time, but also had circulated other regions at different times. So then it was authentic to other regions at different times. Right? So it's easy to push back against authenticity and to show how it's brought. Um, you know, this kind of showcases how authenticity is very ideological. It kind of confirms the you know, person's assumptions of what authenticity is and then kind of just maps that onto like another person or another kind of food way. Um, so I think that the show, and this kind of produces very limiting definitions of what uh, minoritized food ways or, you know, Asian ethnic food ways could be and what Asian Americanists could be. And I think that shows like Top Chef on the one hand can be generative for undermining that, but at the very same time, just as well codify uh, a lot of these ideological problems. Uh, it, I think a show like Top Chef is really great with bringing widespread and immediate visibility to underserved and underrepresented culinary cultures and minoritized chefs who work in those kind of culinary tracks. Mm -hmm. You know, the latest couple or like the last couple seasons of Top Chef uh, have spotlighted foods from the African diaspora and the global slave trade um, or the, the legacies of that and the food cultures around it. Um, it's really put pressure on not to not to uh, ruin this last season for you, oh, but it totally really <laughs> it really put there were chefs who got really far. I will say, uh, putting pressure on what Mexican food could be, really turning away from like the taco model and showcasing a lot of things that people uh, might not know of. Uh, even someone as a you know a Mexican American. Uh, person of mixed race background, like I, you know, I didn't know a lot of the foods that were being showcased. So it was even eye-opening to uh, people who identify as Mexican or Mexican-American. Um, and also, it also shows that like these kinds of food cultures can be fine dining, right? Which again, pushes back on maybe mainstream perceptions of people's understanding or assumptions that Chinese food is only takeout and it should be like $7. And like, uh, you know, African food is just, uh, 
like Ethiopian food that is like $10 takeout or like tacos are only, you know, 50 cents and that's how much I should pay for them. And that's all they're good for. Right. So I think it really showcases or it really challenges the uh, existing ideas we have about value and worth of minoritized food cultures. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, though, as you're saying, there are very clear instances where Top Chef risks perpetuating the very problems or or ideologies that uh, come with authenticity, right? Cooking from the heart or the soul. Mm -hmm. Uh, Authenticity, ironically, is not equal to everyone, right? Authentic Italian and French cuisine and Spanish cuisine is really seen as soulful and therefore like valuable. Um, But, you know, in this latest season of Top Chef as well, there was uh, a black chef from Philadelphia, if I recall correctly, who cooked um, African diasporic foods. Uh, Her foods were called, when her foods are talked about in this authentic kind of way, the judges called it like home cooking and wanted a little more elevation to her home cooking. Mm, mm. Um, On the flip end, uh, or in a different way, I should say, as you also mentioned, like Asian American chefs have been on the show and we're told to be more soulful, which implicitly operates on this ideology that Asian Americans are these like robotic model minorities who like produce or do labor in ways that are like heartless or, you know, lacking feeling. Mm -hmm. So it's this, it's, you know, you can see how different modes of ways in which people have been racialized, black peoples, uh, Asian American peoples, yeah, appears in different ways. uh, and the show uh, maybe inadvertently uh, mm-hmm. risks uh, codifying some of these existing ideologies. But again, I think that's, you know, that's why I, that's why I turn to, I think, you know, cookbooks as a way, as an important way to uh, challenge and frustrate some of these narratives, where I see the cookbook as an important space where chefs who have been historically misrepresented, stereotyped, marginalized, excluded uh, on mainstream media, they're now able to challenge those modes of stereotyping through their texts that put pressure on this sort of like, you know, glorified, glamorous light of restaurant work and uh, restaurant ownership. You know, um, I have have a set of cookbooks right next to me, um, but you know, I don't, I don't, I know people won't be able to see this, but I'll at least show you. Oh, nice. I have uh, Dale Talday, who was on mm-hmm. Top Chef as well. He has this, um, you know, actually, incidentally, his, his cookbook is named Proudly Inauthentic Recipes from the Philippines to Brooklyn, and he titles it Asian American. Um, but so he really, his coming to career narrative, which I write about in my piece, his coming to career narrative challenges this kind of glamorous ways that professional kitchens have been presented he actually uses the term, he calls it uh, his narrative, pushing back against the quote, food as art bullshit that gets portrayed <laughs> on, on uh, uh, mainstream television by really showing how like he was subject to a lot of uh, racisms in the kitchen where people expected him to cook uh, Asian or Asian inspired foods, even though he wasn't necessarily trained in that way and kind of mm-hmm. actively avoided that as his own effort to kind of like distance himself from that expectation. Right. Uh, he actually even describes working in professional kitchen cultures as quote, hard labor, as if it's like being imprisoned. He actually compares it to like uh, not 
not being in chef's whites, but actually being in uh, in prisons, like uh, orange jumpsuits. Right. Where, you, right. yeah, you're subject to all these kind of expected kind of toils. Um, so I think that, you know, the cookbook functions in this very resistant way to challenge and maybe even supplement the narratives that we mm-hmm. get in mainstream media, like Top Chef. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And I again, that's um, a great segue to my next question, which one of the things that you point out in your paper, sort of one of the main sections is this coming to career narrative, um, which is, you know, these cookbooks aren't just, you open them up and chapter one is recipes and that's it, it just goes through, you know, there's a whole text involved, which is what your reading is all about. Um, and as I read your paper, I was struck, and maybe this is just because I'm, you know, in PR and marketing, and this is how my brain works. But my question to you was, when as you read these coming to career narratives and you look at these cookbooks on the whole with the text as well as the recipes and how they're presented um, and how those messages are delivered, like you just pointed out with Dale's cookbook, how much do you think that those narratives are being driven by the chefs themselves versus you know, an editor, a PR marketing department that's saying, you know, this, this is going to sell. Um, why don't you write, write a personal essay to go along with these recipes? Do you, do you think that there's sort of equal billing and sort of the impetus of those, of those texts? Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's a really interesting point and uh, could even lead to a, a really great project of tracing the connections between <laughs> PR marketing and editing and like evolutions in a, <laughs> in the food industry. I will read that paper too. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say you should write that paper. Um, <laughs> uh, but no, that sounds that sounds really great. I, I don't necessarily, well, one, I would say, I think that's definitely evidence. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of the chefs I write on are just open with the ways that they either left their education, their formal kind of like schooling educational uh, early or dropped out. Um, or only went up to a certain level before they went to culinary school. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, it makes sense that I'm sure they get guidance in different ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't analyze that in my, uh, in my project so much, uh, but I do think that, I do think that it's important to at least think about the ways, the possibilities, uh, also the limitations of what that means. Right. So um I think on the one hand, it's easy to maybe uh, critique the ways that different kinds of industries are or institutional uh, incentives uh, kind of revolving around the profitability of that book in the literary marketplace mm-hmm. informs these narratives. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's easy to critique that. But on the other hand, I think that there are also generative ways in which you can see that Asian Americans are now accessing a level of influence where people want those narratives. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it shouldn't be like this turn away from that fully or like a full embrace of that. But again, somewhere in between where there has to be something positive about, uh, you know, one, reading the reading public's interest in Asian American narratives and stories. And also, you know, this comes with viewing, viewing audiences as well, but also like the publishing industry's interest in Asian American stories. But again, as my, as my project also uh, tries to showcase how the concept of misfits and misfit professionals extends beyond Asian America. Uh, but nevertheless, I'm just using that as an example. Um, uh, but also, so I think that it's a very, it can be uh, it can be positive in its own ways. Um, I think also though, it just 
demonstrates to us further the that the restaurant industry and I guess industries more broadly are just connected to other industries, right? So it so it just makes us more sensitive to the ways that what we think of as this very isolated space is actually part of a larger network of professional ideologies and capitalist production and cultural production that again, actually maybe even, you know, going back to your previous question, force us to put pressure on like what constitutes authenticity or what constitutes like cultural production for these chefs. Uh, Because on the one hand, like authenticity could relate to say cultural backgrounds or racial background or ethnic background or class background or something. But what my piece tries to do is really showcase the ways that uh, institutional structures like that uh, inform professionalization are deeply impactful for these people. And while on the one hand, like uh, quote, like racial or ethnic culture, like quote culture is, um, is important to them. I think also I argue and my piece argues that, you know, professional management systems become influential to the kinds of cultural production we see and the foods that get produced. Mm. Um, so again, I think it's kind of like a, a both and, right? So, right. you know, uh, editing is something or the publishing industry and the literary marketplace can be a site of critique, but it could also for people who have not had voices or who have been stereotyped in those very fields, it can be a site of possibility. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's why I really try to focus on how uh, minoritized people navigate certain industries rather than argue for like a full turn in or a entire like uh, turn away from industry uh, norms and professionalism. That's what my broader work is interested in, right? So mm-hmm. in earlier in this piece, I, um, I position misfits against punks, right? We, mm, we think right. of punks as, I mean, when you think of misfits, you think of a punk or something or some iteration of that. Uh, but, you know, punk, although it's a very diverse and uh, rich kind of subculture with a long history, uh, you know, the idea, the just general idea uh, from a reader might be that they're kind of these like anti-capitalist uh, mm-hmm. groups. Uh, but what I try to show and what why I use the term misfits in this, because misfits are not like anti-capitalist necessarily, right? Like they're actively participating in an industry that has been very open and visible kind of, especially in recent years with activist movements, but with its, uh, you know, toxic masculinity, with mm-hmm. its racism, with its sexism, homophobia. So in this way, you know, you can see how misfits are actively engaged in the industry and at times even risking kind of like reproducing some of these problems. And, you know, chefs, uh, some chefs have been lately just being very open with how they want to be more sensitive and, um, and cognizant of their role within these industries. So um, the point is not to um, herald them misfit professionals as these kind of heroes of the industry mm, or right, even right. disavow their narratives because they have because they are you know like interpolated into market capitals right, right but it's it, right. the point is yeah the point is simply to showcase how they navigate or how they become managed but then also how they navigate in response these spaces to find agency and to forge communities uh, amid regulation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. exactly yeah and I that was one of the things I really liked about the the 
the beginning of your paper was just, was that clear cut definition where you wanted to, to show that misfit means working within a system to, to do things in a way that's never been done before. And I, and I was reminded of that when you were talking about Dale's cookbook and, and the title, you know, defiantly, is that the word you use? Defiantly inauthentic or unapologetically? Proudly. Yeah. Proudly. Yeah, Proudly. Yeah. yeah. Well, that works. <laughs> Proudly inauthentic, which is just kind of, um, in a way, they're using transparency as, as, as a form of power. You know what I mean? Just sort of like, I will, I will say things as bluntly and clearly as truthfully as I can. And that's, um, you know, cause a lot of folks, like you said, I think that, I think that the sort of hot cuisine industry has been this impenetrable box that people think that they need to do certain things to get into. And, um, yeah, like I think that this sort of radical misfit truth telling is is a really powerful way that they're that these chefs are doing that. So thank you. That was a really interesting, interesting answer. Um, so my next question is, uh, I is just because I'm curious, but um, having read your paper, I'm wondering if you like to cook and if you collect cookbooks and if any of these texts that you're reading for your you know professional research have sort of you know made their way into your into your actual kitchen in your life. Yeah. Well. Um... I didn't really start cooking too much until, you know, in grad school, but even then I was, you know, and, and the, the, the foundations for this project were kind of when I was writing my dissertation, mm. but even when I was like cooking in grad school, I was always cooking on a budget, right, uh, right. I guess just the classic like English grad student budget. So I, I right. couldn't really uh, cook too many uh, fancy things. Um, I will say I do like to cook, uh, you know, some things from scratch. Like uh, I really like pe- like making pizza. I guess I just like classic foods, like classic, you know, nice. home cooked pizza or homemade pizza, even like fried chicken sandwiches. Some of this was kind of coming out of like my own uh, experiences uh, living, you know, part time with my partner uh, when she was in, I would commute to see her. She lives in Philadelphia um, mm. when she went to grad school there. Um, but but yeah, so some of the local kind of food cultures there inspired me. Uh, in terms of like, uh, you know, the the food from the cookbooks that I analyze, I have some of them too right next to me. Um, what's interesting about the cookbook, and I think maybe this even, I mean, I mean, this does come out in uh, my project, but what's interesting to me about the cookbooks that I analyze and my relation to them is like, uh, ironically, I'm, I'm like not as interested in the recipes or like, I don't think it's just about the recipes I should right. say, but I, I really like the, the narratives. I mean, that mm-hmm. makes sense because I'm analyzing the narratives, but <laughs> I like the narratives, but I also like the, like the pictures and the mm-hmm. images and the artwork. So, you know, I have, uh, I can show you, you know, again, I know that your listeners won't see, but, uh, you know, uh, the Danny Bowen's the mission Chinese food cookbook, it kind mm-hmm. of the cover emulates this sort of like, uh, your yeah, expectations of the Asian or Chinese restaurants. But ultimately, I argue in my piece, he does a lot of work to undermine those expectations and alters his own restaurant space to resist that. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in, in his book, he has not only, you know, over 100 pages of the narrative. So you can see how the narrative really takes primacy in these kind of coming to career right. narratives, uh, even more so than the recipes at times. Um, but also he includes a lot of images that show him to like show him as this kind of like misfit kid with how he's dressed, uh, misfit young adults. Um, uh, and then also he showcases a lot of moments with his family or with his friends, 
Um, or even like restaurant workers who have historically escaped visibility in the public sphere, uh, like these, you know, undocumented or working class back end, you know, workers who work in the back end parts of the restaurant space and don't get any attention. So there's a lot of like photos that he and uh, that he includes that bring visibility to that. And that's what I like about it. Um, I also really like uh, Pretty Mysteries, the Juhu Beach uh, Club cookbook. Mm-hmm. And in this one, uh, they spotlight uh, in these very beautiful ways, like Indian spices and ingredients, like vegetables, or even just the spices themselves on center on the page, which I think importantly, you know, on the one hand, they're beautiful. But on the other hand, I think that they're actively and visually challenging the expectations we have about, you know, what takes primacy in a dish, right? In this kind of Western culinary tradition, we see sort of like the protein is like the center of the dish and like Mm. vegetables are a side or vegetables are secondary, Uh, you know, in this kind of maybe Indian context, spices are just, you know, in, you know, Western perceptions of Indian food might be just like, it's just a bunch of spices. We don't know what it is. It's mysterious, but there are a lot of spices. Um, But and understanding it's not important, but like it ends up being good. But I think what they do here is like they really showcase and put front and center the spices as a way to challenge and undermine that expectation, but also, yeah, the vegetables. Um, I also really like Kristen Kish's. Kristen Kish was on Top Chef recently and won. Um, She has really beautiful uh, uh, images of food that is very uh, fine dining looking. Also, this one's uh, really engaging Win Tran's uh, Starry Kitchen Adventures and Starry Kitchen Cookbook, which, mm-hmm. as you can see, just kind of on the cover here, as I'm showing you, there isn't a there isn't a picture of a dish on the cover. That's no, so it's just it's kind of like uh, street art almost. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'll put I'll put images of these covers in in with the with the show description so our listeners can see. But that one is the, to me, I was like, that doesn't even look like a cookbook. That just looks yeah, like, it yeah, kind of looks so like just a uh, yeah. I don't even know how to describe it, but it's. It definitely has like the street art vibe. Um, you know, Win Tran was someone who um, like cooks in these sort of what he calls illegal underground uh, kitchens out of mm. his home. And like he had this yeah. kind of like, yeah, underground food economy that was only like legible through these like food blogs um, and friends. And in these, he includes a lot of images in his cookbook where he, uh, where he's like just showcasing him with his friends and being out and like being social. It's this mm-hmm. way in which you can see Asian Americans just being social, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, pushing back again against the stereotype of, you know, Asian Americans as this isolated model, model minorities who are just, you know, among themselves or um, just constantly toiling or something. Um, mm-hmm. But instead, you know, there's this social dynamic. And I think this goes back to the ways that my project is really trying to showcase how the cookbook is not only just a, you know, this space for recipe making uh, and bringing visibility to underseen foods, which on the one hand is important. Uh, But on the other hand, it also is this kind of um, social and political text that uh, engages with or sheds light on systemic institutional inequalities that Asian Americans uh, face, um, among others, face. But then also, once we can begin to see the cookbook as 
a as a document that uh, that gives light to these issues, we can also begin to then see the cookbook as a resistant kind of text that expands how we think about resistance itself. Mm. Right? So we normally think of resistance as just kind of like public activism, which on the one right. hand is very important. But on the other hand, uh, if we only think of public activism and militating on the street as a mode of resistance, uh, it doesn't really do justice and it, it you know, makes us overlook all of these uh, mundane, maybe even, or day-to-day -day experiences mm -hmm. and racisms that, you know, minorities face, but also it makes us overlook the, us then, or, you know, the cookbook at least allows us to, you know, draw visibility to the ways in which even within those kind of day-to-day -day, uh, regulations, there are opportunities for resistance in their own kind of context. Right. 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 Yeah. yeah. So I think no, that it's really useful in those ways to read the cookbook. And I, yeah, like you said, I think it's, um, the power in it is that it's, you know, pardon the pun, I guess it's, but it's sort of like a palatable vehicle for that. You know what I mean? Like, is it's like, yeah. oh, it's just a cookbook from this show that I watch. And then you, you right. do that, but these, these sort of, you know, one by one, these little changes and these new, these new narratives that start to dismantle these stereotypes and these assumptions, um, you know, there's power in that. And I think that's why your work, your work specifically is so valuable because you're sort of calling it out as it's happening, which I just thought was so interesting. So thank you for that. Um, yeah. It's like, it's like come for the recipes, stay for the political activism. Right. Stay <laughs> yeah. for dismantling, you know, right. structural racism. We can, <laughs> right. we can do all of this with, before dinner's exactly. done. I love it. Um, so my last question is, um, what are you currently researching? Um, what's, what's next for you? Yes, I'm working on a couple things right now. Uh, one of them actually is related to food, although I mentioned earlier that my larger work is uh, more geared towards professional labor. Mm -hmm. um, but in this new job that I have at Loyola New Orleans, I've been really interested in uh, thinking about Viet Cajun food, which is like a contemporary fusion between uh, Vietnamese food traditions and Cajun food traditions of the Deep South. Mm. Um, but, you know, often in public spheres, uh, be it Cajun food, and even actually in, you know, uh, documentaries that have been popularized on Vice or um, uh, Netflix original series, Ugly Delicious with David mm -hmm. Chang. Mm -hmm. uh, be it Cajun food is often portrayed as this like mingling of, uh, of Vietnamese and local Southern communities in ways that risk uh, doing a disservice to the longer histories of uh, structural racism that have managed and regulated and really disenfranchised uh, the Vietnamese refugee communities that have uh, been in the South since the Vietnam War. Um, so my project tries to push against this kind of narrative mm -hmm. by looking at the ways, by spotlighting, I guess, um, uh, like fisher folks and the ways that Vietnamese refugee communities have been uh, part of the food industry through the, through their farming practices. Um, and I do this by wanting to draw attention to the role that ecological disasters have played in exacerbating these kinds of social and political uh, and urban inequalities by uh, tracing Viet Cajun food back to 
disasters like Hurricane Katrina and the BP mm -hmm. oil spill that ravaged mm -hmm. the industry and access to those industry opportunities. So uh, I'm trying to bring in this sort of um, eco-critical uh, perspective in order to, again, expand these narratives of Asian American belonging and uh, uh, participation within the food world um, that push back against this idea that, you know, Viet Cajun food is just a product of a more progressive South. Right. Uh, and then in my broader research, um, I'm working, I'm continuing to work on my book project, uh, which examines and reckons with uh, Asian Americans entrance into increasingly diverse industry professions in the 21st century. I have, you know, this is one of my chapters on uh, misfit chefs and restaurateurs. I mentioned earlier that I also have uh, work and one chapter is on what I call professional amateurs, which examines um, Asian American content creators on YouTube to, you know, YouTube is normally seen as this free alternative open democratic space apart from mainstream media where minoritized peoples who have been historically stereotyped and excluded now have a space to present themselves authentically. So authenticity kind of comes back into play. Mm -hmm. But that piece uh, traces uh, content monetization policies mm -hmm. uh, and developments on the platform to show how uh, actually, you know, mainstream media and entertainment industries have been central to uh, the making of YouTube and the evolution of yeah. YouTube uh, because these very kind of profit um, initiatives or profit-based initiatives to expand the platform are gatekept by the mm -hmm. very industries that have pushed out minoritized peoples. Mm. So I kind of push back against this idea of YouTube as a uh, free and open space and show how minoritized peoples are made, although they're making money, they're made, their performances are oh, made to seem amateur. My, my PR wheels are spinning. I'm really, is that, so is that going to be also a separately published paper or is that just part of the book? That's actually out now uh, oh, okay. in the journal of Asian American studies. Yeah. Fantastic. So people could um, check it out. <laughs> I, will, I will link that right in our, in our yeah, show. Awesome. That's Thank fantastic. You. Thank you so much. I, and I didn't even realize that that's wonderful. Um, God, that's really interesting. And, and it's yeah. like, when you, when you described that, I was like, well, yeah, <laughs> kind of, not in a, I don't mean this in a bad way, but like, yeah, obviously, but I just would love to really read into the meat of that and to see how that. Oh yeah, definitely. Down. Because and it I is think, like, it's not, it's not democratic at all. Yeah. And I think YouTube knows that, right? Cause their slogan yeah. is broadcast yourself. So they try to, they try to inculturate this uh, sensibility where they're free and open, but you know, right. they're not. Yeah. And then it's like how Google used to say, don't be evil was their motto. And then they, they <laughs> yeah. very quietly stopped using that. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that's a good one. Uh, I've actually, uh, speaking of Google, uh, one of my chapters is also looking at uh, shifts in Silicon Valley mm. uh, ideologies of professionalism. You know, oh, uh, so I have a chapter on the ways that, you know, Asian Americans and Asian uh, knowledge workers were recruited uh, in the late 20th century to Silicon Valley and in the mid to late 20th century to really bolster its uh, STEM type. Uh, mm. initiatives mm -hmm. but since the late 90s or mid to late 90s we've been seeing a shift towards like human or like uh, Silicon Valley's embrace or really co-opting of humanistic ideologies like valuing innovation and creativity and free thinking in ways that can uh, on the one hand be publicly perceived as good but mm -hmm. as we know are very ideological and dangerous 
mm-hmm. when these kind of privatized companies right. co-opt free thinking ideologies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one of my chapters. And then kind of to set this all off, um, I uh, in one of my early chapters, I'm trying to look at and make sense of uh, represent changing representations of Asian American college students in literature, film, and media to showcase and argue that you know, there's a new generation of Asian Americans arising who, you know, are going into different kinds of uh, career tracks that um, require us to rethink their almost pre-professional approaches to careerism um, by looking at, you know, Asian American students and representations of Asian American students migrating towards more humanistic fields and how this mm-hmm. alters our traditional understandings of model minorityness mm-hmm. and um, uh, making it possible to think about uh, Asian Americans in more diverse industry settings, which then again sets off the rest of the book looking at chefs and content creators mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Silicon Valley people. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's a project that I really enjoy. And uh, food is one of it, one aspect of it, but uh, it's largely driven by um, changing relations to professional industries, given, again, Asian Americans' historical relation to the American labor economy. Right, 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 through that specific lens. It's not, it all, I mean, I, every, I want to read all of it. So that's, you, you, you sold me. Um, last question, does the book have a title and a publication date yet? It's tentatively titled uh, Professionalizing Asian America, Race and Labor in the 21st Century. Um, it's not doesn't have a publication date yet, but maybe I'll be back on the podcast again when it comes out. <laughs> I would love to have you back. I would love to have you back. But thank you so much, Leland, for this. This was a wonderful conversation. I could probably keep talking to you for another hour, but we'll spare our listeners that. Um, I just really appreciate it. Your work is so interesting and important, and I want to thank you for your time today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking. I mean, I could talk also about uh, cooking and chefs and restaurateurs forever. So uh, it was really enjoyable to uh, be here. And I really appreciate you. This podcast is a production of Johns Hopkins University Press. For more information, please visit press.jhu.edu slash journals.